Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. about some of the new technology in a way that it allows people to confess more facebook calls it radical transparency it, it sort of um it encourages people to open up their personal lives and to erase the distinction between their public and private selves and in one sense you could say that's quite hard for shy people but at the same time of course it's also it's also an indirect thing. It's also, it allows you to have an avatar, for example, or it allows you to anonymize yourself. I've always liked things like email um, because I sort of feel that email is sort of, has some of the advantages of a telephone conversation, but with none of the disadvantages for a shy person, which is that you sort of have to think on your feet. Um, so it allows you to just kind of reflect on what you have, want to say. You can be a little bit spontaneous, but you can also, you can also be a bit premeditated as well. Um, you would think that texting would never really have taken off because it's quite a primitive technology. It's actually quite time-consuming to write a text rather than speak to someone. But there seemed to be some kind of attraction in the sort of um, the, the mediated nature of it, that it allows you to formulate a response. I think a lot of shy people are drawn to that kind of thing like email and texting because it's, it's both spontaneous and also a little bit premeditated. Every self contains multitudes. We are all an amalgam of public and private versions of ourselves. A public self is also, in its way, real. Perhaps it's even more real than a private self, given the enormous time we invest in its successful realisation. What a suffocating earnest world it would be if we all had to be an open book to everyone. There should surely be room in the gene pool for a behaviour that is awkward or mullish, or that experiments with different ways of being ourselves, or that invites accusation of pretension or artifice, even if it involves ignoring passers-by in the desert, building ballrooms below ground, or taking to bed for 30 years with our scent bottles. The frank and thoughtful words of British social historian Joe Moran. From his latest book, Shrinking Violets, a field guide to shyness, published by Profile Books. So what is shyness? Where does it come from and what is the cost? Hello, I'm Joe Moran. I'm a, a cultural historian and uh, I suppose my, uh, my interest really is in the history of everyday life. So I focus on topics that are, are kind of the things we do um, all the time and throughout our lives, but we don't necessarily reflect very much on, the, on their meanings or their histories. So I've written about uh, motorways, I've written about queuing, I wrote a book with a history of watching TV, and my latest book, which is kind of about everyday life, but it's also a personal interest of mine, is, is about shyness. It's a history of shyness and being shy. What a compassionate, warm and informative book, Joe. Really well done. Shrinking Violets, it opened up so many different vistas onto the world and to the human condition. It was really quite extraordinary. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we'll see where we go with that. What does history have to tell us about shyness? Well, it's quite hard to tell a history of shyness because um, I guess I'm, I'm partly attracted to subjects that are quite hard to evidence in some way. Obviously, I have a personal interest in shyness as well, but I was kind of interested in the history of shyness just because it's so hard to tell because, well, for fairly obvious reasons, um, people who are shy don't tend to like uh, talking or, 
or writing about it. So um, it's quite a hard thing to evidence. So that 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 was one of the things that uh, attracted to me about it as a subject. Has also made it hard to write about. I suppose I wanted to tell the history of shyness just because it's a kind of unglamorous thing. It's it's sort of fairly mundane. It's fairly chronic. It's not a, it's not a sort of intense experience. It's not like madness or melancholia or depression or it's not an extreme condition. So it's it's not necessarily something that people sort of reflect on its history or its meaning. So. I guess that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I say it's a history of shyness, but I suppose it, in a way it's a kind of it's a kind of essay about shyness because you can't really tell a chronological story about shyness just because the evidence for it is so is so kind of fragmentary and so dispersed. So, I guess I am a historian, but it's a very strange kind of history. It sort of goes off on one and it goes off on all kinds of riffs just because I don't think you can tell a complete history of shyness. Well, the riffs are very good, I have to say, Joe, and hugely informative. I was just wondering, within all of that, do you think that in some ways we've underestimated shyness and maybe misunderstood the varieties inherent in shyness? Because somebody could be very extroverted on the surface and very chatty and possibly somewhat charismatic or whatever. Mm. And then, but they could be very shy or reticent or reserved in some way about their personal feelings or, or maybe about their private self. So that we are to a degree battling some degree of shyness. Yeah, I think there's just something very human about being shy. Um, I just think it's part of the human condition, really, which is to to be self-conscious. I mean, as far as we know, we're the only animals that are self-conscious that have that capacity for what Darwin called self-attention. But we're also social animals. We also need other people. We congregate in tribes and we worry about what other people think about us but because um because we are all isolated consciousnesses we're never going to be able to find that out definitively i mean thank god for that most of us would say that we don't know what everyone thinks of us but um but because of that it it inevitably i think creates anxiety and reflection on that um so yes i do think there's something very human about it and i think you're right that some very unlikely people who don't sort of manifest as shy at all, have certainly told me in the course of writing this book that they are shy. I think it's very situational. I think it's very contextual. I think it's often very erratic and uneven. I mean, I, for example, I'm, I'm quite good in certain situations. I'm quite good um, public speaking and, and performing. So I think that people who aren't shy at all find that quite puzzling, the fact that it's, it can sort of ebb and flow in very uneven ways. You describe shyness as social deafness and you argue shy people unsettle others because they unsettle the tacit conventions of social life. I thought that was very, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I started with that idea because I, I wanted to suggest that I didn't think shyness was just about fear or timidity. I think it's a very common way of thinking about shyness, that you're just kind of fearful. And I don't think that's ever been the case with me. And actually, I think often shy people can be quite sort of um, stubborn or have have a sort of strange kind of self-confidence about certain things. So I don't don't think it's just about fear or timidity. I, I certainly think that I can find it quite hard to um, pick up on social cues. Um, And I think it's often the sort of situations of sort of social ambiguity or spontaneity that we find hardest. 
if I have permission to speak, if I'm doing a lecture, say, I find it much easier. I find it much harder, say, when you're walking down a corridor and you're not, you're not sure whether you're supposed to stop and say hello to someone. So, yeah, it's just those kind of social codes that um, we can find hard just because they're unstated, just because no, no one ever states them explicitly. But I think one of the things that one of the mistakes that shy people sometimes make is they think they're the only people that don't understand those social codes. I think actually everyone finds them difficult. One of the things that I've discovered in the course of writing this book is that nobody really knows. Everyone feels those kind of anxieties. I was just wondering, Joe, you, you say shyness is a low-intensity, mundane, chronic, nebulous and hard-to-define condition. Is that one of the reasons why you decided to write the book or did you want to actually unpack your own shyness? Well, probably a bit of both, really. I mean, that there's not a huge amount of um, autobiography in the book. There's a little bit because it's always a bit of a problem when you're writing about shyness is you don't really want it to turn into a sort of whinge about yourself or about the world. So... I suppose what I wanted to do was to discover the commonality in shyness. I thought that might be one way of, of it not becoming this kind of self-absorbed whinge. And it, it sort of started out as a conceit. It started out as a, a, as a kind of experiment that, so that I, I wouldn't just be doing that. I wouldn't just be being self-absorbed. But then as I, as I went on, I realized actually it's true. It is a very common condition. It is something that actually does, it does kind of unite us. But we don't tend to kind of think about it much just precisely because it is it is very sort of mundane and chronic. Do you think we, in terms of how we've described or how societies have looked at shyness, that it's very limiting in its understanding, that we haven't seen shyness in its full complexity? And what I mean by that is that we're throwing lots of different types of labels on shyness mm. and that we haven't possibly estimated the positives. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably increasingly true, actually, that, that, that to see shyness as essentially a sort of debility or even a pathology. Uh, the book is actually called Shrinking Violets, but it's, I suppose it's a slightly ironic title because I don't think that shyness is about shrinking away. I think it's about sublimating your social instincts in other ways. And I think that's probably, again, there's probably something very human about that. We're often seen as the most communicative species. But actually, lots of animals communicate, but we seem to be the only species that sublimates our communication. In other words, we we communicate indirectly. So we can write, we can do music, we can do art, uh, we can do sort of computer coding. Computer coders are, are shy so that we have this ability to sort of step back from the social world and communicate with people sort of at one remove. And I wouldn't necessarily say that shyness is the only cause of human creativity, and there's lots of other reasons why people are creative. But I do think, well, certainly a lot of the people I write about in the book, writers, artists, painters, musicians, performers, their shyness was a very powerful uh, motivator, the, the sense that they weren't able to communicate in conventional ways. Whether it, that's actually worth it, whether it's worth all the pain to, uh, to create that sort of art or music or writing, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I think there are positive aspects to it. But, but I think that the thing I, I eventually concluded is that shyness is, isn't really positive or negative. It's just, it's so common and so human 
that it's not really good or bad. It's just there, really. It just kind of is. And it's just a sort of very common thing that we each, or almost everybody, uh, performs their own kind of riffs and variations on. So it can make you self-absorbed. It can make you narcissistic. It can make you it can sort of cut you off from the world. It, equally, it can make you creative and other-directed and interested in the world. Yeah, you argue somewhere that, you know, shyness can either be a gift or, or a burden of self-consciousness. And that got me thinking that that lends itself into being very self-aware. It can do. As I say, it's, it probably has all kinds of effects. Um, it can be debilitating. It can make you so self-conscious that it actually cuts you off from the world. I think it can make you aware of the imperfections of communication. I think that that's actually quite a useful skill to have, to be aware that language or ways of communicating with other people is actually a sort of evolutionary compromise, that actually we are isolated consciousnesses, so that when we try and talk to each other, it's always an approximation of what we think and feel. And I think that's actually quite a good thing to, to know, of course, if you if you think about it too much, it can be debilitating because you don't you don't think you can communicate at all. But I think it can be quite good to be aware of how difficult it is to communicate with other people. And then when you're aware of how difficult it is, you can sort of try harder if you like. Do you think it's fair to say shy people are better listeners than extroverted yeah. people because they give people the space to talk because they may not want to talk themselves? can be. I mean, people do sometimes say that about me. Uh, yes, I, I, th- I think um, it, it, you can go the other way, I suppose. If you, what, One of the things that I've, I suppose I've realized is that you also do have to tell people things. I always kind of slightly fetishized the fact that I'm a good listener, uh, which I think I am. And it sort of helps in a professional context because I'm a lecturer and, and teacher. But I also think one of the things that I've realized is you do sort of need to to share things as well. You do need, actually need to dispense information to tell people things about yourself. It's not actually enough just to listen to what they say. So it's a kind of two-way thing. But of course, also, you can have people who are very shy who actually don't listen because they're so nervous. They actually talk too much. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just think, I don't, I'm not sure you can really generalize about it. There are a lot of shy people who are good listeners, and, and some of them are in the book. Equally, there are shy people who just kind of produce monologues because they're, they're so self-conscious, they're not actually really engaging with other people. You have some great stuff on British Reserve and how the British Secret Service operated, I think it was in the 19th century. And you talk about dynamic understatement and exaggerated civility. Do you think that still applies? Well, that, it's interesting about English Reserve um, because people have been saying for almost as long as it's existed that it's declining. And it's a very common sort of narrative of post-war British life is that we're becoming less reserved and we're becoming more kind of open and transparent. But no, that's certainly still true in the, in the British Civil Service, the sense of having a very sort of understated language. So you say that um, you know, if you're very angry with someone, you say that their, their contributions are unhelpful. The interesting thing about um, those codes is, of course, that people who, are, who know those codes 
communicates a, a great deal of anger and frustration. So actually it sort of makes perfectly clear what you mean, even though the language itself is very understated. The interesting thing about English reserve, I suppose, is that it's it's a kind of cultivated shyness. It's a, it's a sort of combination of diffidence and shyness and sort of confidence and arrogance. And I, I think that the sort of... Um, one explanation for that is that, that actually it's not really shyness. I talk about quite a few people in the book, like um, the poet Siegfried Sassoon and um, his lover, um, Stephen Tennant. And their kind of shyness was so extreme that it seemed like an act. It seemed like a sort of persona that, that they were sort of cultivating. But I think my explanation for that is actually just, just because your shyness can seem like an act... I talk about this with uh, Morrissey as well, actually. It had the same kind of um, vibe of someone who was sort of elaborately shy, almost kind of shyness as a a performance. Just because it seems like a performance doesn't necessarily mean that it's insincere. You can have something that's an act that isn't a sham. And I think that's that's certainly true of of that certain kind of English reserve. It's it's a sort of persona, but it's also real. But that can breed suspicion and distrust, Joe, and make people very, very uncomfortable. It can. And and, uh, I actually one of the things I've tried to do, I suppose, is it's not it's not make people feel uncomfortable. Um, I think there is always that temptation. Because I was sort of I, I was sort of brought up on Morrissey in a way. I was sort of of that generation. There is this kind of temptation because you see you see that kind of role model for shyness and it's so kind of charismatic and glamorous. It sort of feels like a lifesaver. It sort of feels like something you can sort of latch on to. But yes, you're right that actually it, it can seem arrogant and it can seem like, um, uh, like it's sort of um, closing off other people. Personally, I've tried not to do that. And one of the things that I've always hated about being shy is that it can make other people feel uncomfortable to, to the extent that I fought against my shyness, which I have. Um, it's because of that, actually. It's just that I sort of feel that being alive and, and being part of the social world, it's part of the sort of levy that you pay in a way, which is that you sort of have to join in a bit. Uh, even if you find it really hard, you sort of have to... Um, you do have to talk to people. You have to be sort of part of the social world. So if I cannot make people feel uncomfortable through my shyness, then that for me is an achievement. And I suppose it's a matter of just getting on with it and brutally pushing through it. Is that it? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't actually think personally that shyness is something that you ever entirely get rid of, mm. which sort of goes against a lot of the current sort of ideology of sort of self-help and personal growth that the idea is that you can change yourself if you're shy and introverted you can become more extroverted i sort of feel that our temperaments uh, whatever they are are fairly tenacious and resilient and certainly all of the people that i write about in the book they were as shy at the end of their lives as they were uh, when they were at the start of it um, you can find ways of finessing it. You can sort of find ways around it. But essentially, I think it doesn't really go away. So, so yeah, I think you just keep going, really. Mm-hmm. I think you... But one of the things that sort of helped me is just being a little bit zen about it and just sort of saying, well, that's what I am. 
um, that sort of part of me and not kind of obsessing about it too much because I think if you actually, if you get frustrated with it or if you sort of feel that, um, feel you have to defeat it, um, you end up feeling defeated because you can't. Whereas actually if you just, if you just say, well, that's what I'm like, you sort of stop obsessing about it a bit and that kind of helps because of course the thing about shyness is that it's it's sort of self-generating you get more shy the more you think about being shy it's a bit like you blush more when you blush or you're more embarrassed when you realize you're embarrassed so if you kind of um you can sort of take yourself out of that sort of self-defeating cycle i think it can help a bit so you don't you don't really ever get rid of it. You don't stop being shy, but you you don't sort of beat yourself up about it. You quote um, the British anthropologist and psychotherapist W.H. Rivers, who advised Seyfried Satsun, the, the poet he was treating, who had just come back from World War One, to open up to his shyness. And I thought that was extraordinarily beautiful, but also a very useful and pragmatic approach because it's not threatening. It just means get to know it. Yes, I mean, I, I, that, that's, I guess that's the problem with shyness is that if you're, if you're ashamed of it, it sort of makes it worse. Um, of course, Rivers um, himself was very shy. Most people would know Rivers from Pat Barker's books about um, Siegfried Sassoon and, and the First World War. But yeah, he was um, Siegfried Sassoon's uh, psychotherapist. And I mean, it's, it's a very common uh, thing for psychotherapists to be shy. Actually, you, you, you were talking about shy people being good listeners and uh, that's quite a co- Oliver Sacks is another example it's quite a common thing for, for psychotherapists to be shy partly because it allows you to listen and it's a kind of but also because it's a sort of structured conversation uh, it goes back to what I was saying about I think shy people often quite like working within a genre or a kind of structure that allows them to speak and that allows them to listen to other people but yeah the, the thing about Rivers is that he was he was actually very charismatic people said that about him despite being very shy and all of the people that Secret Sassoon had known before then who were charismatic were absolutely not shy they were just there were these incredibly glamorous figures like Rupert Brooke who always made Sassoon feel inadequate and then you got somebody like Rivers who was who was almost um compelling precisely because he was he was very quiet and shy so it made him realize that shyness was not necessarily just an inadequacy because i think that's a very common way of thinking about shyness that it sort of stops you being who you are and it's something you need to shake off to become the real you and what Sassoon saw in Rivers was the sense that your shyness was a was a sort of positive quality, not necessarily a good quality, but but a but a quality about you. In other words, not a kind of not something that stopped you being something, but that was was you. And I think he found that quite liberating. I probably found it quite liberating as well to think like that, to think of your shyness as being not necessarily something that prevents you being who you are, but that just kind of is who you are. You pitch up a very interesting question, Joe. You ask whether shyness can coexist with self-absorption. Now, you've picked some extraordinary characters, poets, scientists, writers, thinkers, musicians, the likes of Morrissey uh, and so on. So what do you make of all of that? You mean, does shyness equate with self-absorption? Yeah. Yeah. I suppose you need to be a little bit self-absorbed to be an artist. Um, because it's such um, it's such a risky thing to do. It's risky in terms of the investment of your time and the chance of reward. 
it's one of the sort of problems with, I mean, a lot of shy people are writers. And in some ways, the writing helps because it gives you another way of communicating. But of course, it's also displaced. It also it also makes you solitary because it's an inherently solitary activity. And in a sense, it defers the communication to some point in the future that may in fact never come. Um, so I think it takes quite a lot of a sort of perverted self-confidence almost to, to do that, to say, well, I won't take the risk of this possibly embarrassing face-to-face communication in the present. I'll take the even bigger risk of going away for sort of two or three years, producing this work of art, this piece of music, this, this piece of writing, and then it might reach somebody or it might not. So I think in a way that, that sort of does take a certain amount of, I don't know about self-absorption, but a certain kind of cussedness or self-confidence. Because it's a very common thing that people who aren't shy say about shy people, that it's a kind of, it is about self-absorption or it's a kind of inverted narcissism. I suppose (laughs) the only thing I would say about that is it doesn't actually help you as a shy person to be told that. Um, It doesn't actually mean that you can somehow just kind of shake yourself out of it and become less self-absorbed. It's not actually a very helpful thing to say, but it doesn't actually stop you being self-absorbed. And of course, I think there's lots of other ways of being self-absorbed other than being shy. It's, it's almost, you could almost say that's a very human thing as well, to just be absorbed in yourself. Yeah, you, you quote the Italian painter Giorgio Morandi, who lived quite a solitary life, a very intense uh, life. And also, I think the Cezanne also. And you, you, you've, you've kind of asked throughout the book whether all of this shyness leads to great art or to great writing. But there was something I found very curious in the book and when you reference Freud, who believed that writing was in origin the voice of an absent person. Yes, um, I think he refers to writing as a sort of prosthetic limb. It's it's a sort of because, which in a sense that's what it is that um, that that's how writing works. Is you absent yourself, and it only really works if you think of it as somehow orphaned from you. Um, it's actually one of the things I I often say to my to my students when I'm talking about their writing that that they're, they're kind of still assuming that they're there to explain what they mean, um, which is why this particular sentence doesn't work, is because they sort of think that they'll somehow still be there to explain to the person how it, what it means. Um, and actually that doesn't work like that, does it? Because your sentences are kind of orphaned from you and that your sentences have to explain themselves without you. And that's what good writers realise, is that they realise that they're not there to explain what something means. So the writing itself has to stand on its own. So yeah, but I, that's probably true of, of all kinds of art, isn't it? Um, and I talk in the book about sort of cave paintings, that when they discovered cave paintings, um, they were all in very obscure parts of caves where no one could have actually lived. So it does seem to suggest that there might be something about the artistic impulse that's introverted, that actually means that you have to, or you want to escape from the social world go off and write or do art and then come back and show people what you've done. Do you think some cultures are better at dealing with silence, withdrawal and that sense of isolation from the world? Not alienation now, but that kind of sense of removal. Like I know you look at the Finns, the Swedish, the Norwegians and also um, um, men and women from Shetland 
and how they, their understanding and engagement with silence is so much more different. And it's not as negative or as, as fearful as we look at it all. No, I mean, that, that's interesting that, that humans generally, as, as a species, we do tend to find silence hostile in some way. But that you're right that there are certain cultures where that, the conventions and codes about that differ in the Nordic countries, they, they tend to think, well, they tend to think of themselves as shy and they tend to have quite positive words for shyness. So I can't remember what they are, actually, but the, but the sort of Finnish words for, and the Swedish words for shy and shyness, they, they have quite positive meanings. They sort of mean sort of modest and, and self-effacing. And yes, they do have different kind of rules about silence. One of the things that they don't tend to do a lot in in Finland, for example, is I think linguists call it back channeling. It's basically when when you're speaking to someone and they sort of go mm mm, and they sort of nod their head just to kind of reassure you that they've understood and that they're still there, kind of listening to you. And in Finland, they don't really tend to do that. They tend to think that as a bit rude or kind of that you're sort of interrupting them, and they wouldn't make as much sort of eye contact. So. So yeah, there are there are kind of different rules about about that, about just kind of letting someone else speak. I was very interested in the research that you, the stuff you wrote about Charles de Gaulle and leadership, and how he believes that the chief is one who does not speak, and he was very very genuine on that, wasn't he? And he was very genuinely shy as well, which I suppose it, that goes back to to, to this sort of paradox I've been talking about that, that shyness, well shyness is very situational but also shyness can can merge with what seems like sort of stubbornness or self-confidence. Uh, people certainly I don't actually think many people would have said that de Gaulle was shy um, and it was only really something that, that is sort of emerged after his death in the, in the biographies and that, that he'd, he'd actually said it to his intimates that he was sort of intensely shy. What made de Gaulle so, so charismatic is that when he did speak, he was incredibly articulate. Normally we expect, well, it's only true of me, when we expect when shy people speak, they're often a bit sort of tongue-tied and inarticulate. Um, de Gaulle only really spoke when he had something to say, and when he did speak, he spoke in sort of perfect sentences. And that can be very powerful, actually. It can be very powerful when you have people who are silent most of the time, and then when they do speak, it has a huge sort of moment. I think, actually, this is a problem that I have, and actually I think probably quite a lot of shy people have, is that when they've been silent for a while in a group, um, you start to think that, well, if I say something now it's going to have huge significance because I haven't said anything before and people are going to sort of really kind of notice it. But if you sort of reverse that, if you if you use that as a strength, that your silence is, when you actually do speak, it makes what you say incredibly momentous. And that was something that certainly de Gaulle used. I don't know if he used it consciously or not. And he, as I say, he was certainly genuinely shy but it, it became the source of this, um, this this great sort of charisma that he had. You quote some English uh, literary critic who described small talk as a ceremony of self-wastage. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, but it makes so much sense when you think it through. 
Well, yeah, that was uh, that was Cyril Connolly who said that. But um, well, well, small talk is like that, isn't it? That's why it's called small, I suppose. Actually, in in um, in the Nordic countries, small talk. I think it's I think it's called cold talk, kalprata, and they call it in Sweden. Uh, and it's seen in exactly the same way as being sort of pointless um, and just sort of um, well. There's an anthropologist called Bronislav Malinowski who calls it fatic communion. Fatic meaning sort of um, just just about not actually communicating anything. Uh, and I actually think that's that's something that's something that I've certainly felt, and that a lot of um, shy people have felt i think probably charles de gaulle was another example because he was terrible at small talk is that they think that small talk is pointless and that actually what they're looking for is a more genuine effort at communication so it's not that they don't want to talk to people it's just that they don't want to talk to people meaninglessly they don't want to do that kind of small talk but actually of course what any anthropologist would tell you is that actually small talk is incredibly important. It may not actually have any content, but it is a oh, it's partly to do with this kind of the, the sense that silence is a is a, a sign of hostility. Um, it's incredibly important just as a way of bonding people and just kind of starting that um, that conversation. And it it will eventually produce intimacy. It will eventually produce conversation that means something. That's something, certainly something that I've learned painfully and lengthily, that actually there is a point to small talk.
Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm exploring the hidden world of shyness with British social historian Dr Joe Moran, whose latest book, Shrinking Violets, A Field Guide to Shyness, has just been published by Profile Books, where Joe writes, Perhaps the oddest of many odd things about shyness is that unlike other anxious states, such as fear, shame and even embarrassment, it never strikes when we are alone. For however long it has existed, it must surely have added much to the sum of human loneliness. But it also lays bare how linked we are, how much we matter to one another. Now, one of the interesting questions Joe pitches up in Shrinking Violets is whether shyness is a gift. Think Charles Darwin, Glenn Gould, Laurence Olivier and even the dazzling Morrissey, all men with incredible capacity and edge, yet very, very shy. I asked Joe about the talented and enigmatic English actor Dirk Bogard and his very public battle with shyness. Yeah, well, he talked about that. He talked about stage fright as being the most uh, terrifying thing that, that he'd ever felt, which is very strange because, of course, he, he had fought in the Second World War. He'd, he'd, I think he'd fought in the D-Day landing. So it's a very odd thing to say. But, of course, people do, do sometimes say that about stage fright, is that it's, it's the scariest thing that you can feel it's odd that you have actors, that so many actors who experience that that kind of fear, and yet I suppose it's not really a, a lot of a lot of actors. Well, a lot of actors are kind of drawn. A lot, a lot of shy people rather are drawn to the idea of performance, and yet they also find it incredibly scary as well. And Glenn Gould, also the Canadian pianist, he loved working in the studio where he could control all the different dynamics. But when you put him on the stage, he literally freaked the lid totally didn't he he lost the head totally well he actually had to retire from concert performances at quite a young age in his early 30s um glenn gould is interesting because he would be another example of someone who didn't necessarily present as shy when he when he appeared in public when he when he did recitals um his shyness would have come across as probably sort of arrogance and eccentricity he would do things like um humming along when he was playing um, he always wore a lounge suit instead of a kind of a tuxedo. He probably wouldn't have presented as shy. But yeah, he just basically disappeared into his studio and uh, became very interested in radio in uh, doing sort of recordings of work. Um, that, again, I think is, is, uh, is often a, a sort of strategy of shy musicians, that if they really can't uh, perform on stage, they become incredibly sort of cocooned in studio and they, they, they get very interested in microphones and that becomes a kind of sublimated uh, sort of form of communication as well. But the idea of shy people being drawn to performance is hugely interesting because whether it says they want to face down their demons or test themselves and put themselves through the rigours, I don't know. But it is extraordinary, isn't it? It kind of is and it isn't really. I guess it goes back to, to I just think we are very resiliently sociable. Uh, we, we're just inherently social animals, and we get lonely if we're if we if we're not with other people. Um, so if you are shy, if you're kind of fearful of other people, you just need to find a way really of of communicating with others, even if you put yourself in very uncomfortable situations. I mean, what, one of the explanations that sort of made sense for me uh, for stage fright. Um, there's a psychiatrist called Donald Kaplan who says this that that the reason that people find uh, the stage such a terrifying situation is because they are deprived of the usual kind of 
mannerisms that we all have that make us feel comfortable. So we might sort of hold our bodies in a certain way or we might have certain kind of verb, uh, sort of habitual bodily tics that we have that make us feel comfortable. And then when we go on stage, we're deprived of them. But of course, a lot of shy people don't really have those anyway. So, they, you know, they, 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 they just feel uncomfortable and awkward all the time. So when they go on stage, they might feel nervous, but they don't necessarily feel um, not themselves, if that makes sense. I mean, there, there is another, there's a, there's a very, very nice uh, German word, word uh, Maskenfreiheit, which means uh, the freedom conferred by masks. And you could imagine that, although acting, yes, it is a kind of showing off. So it, it, you might think it's odd that shy people do it. But of course, it's also being someone else. And that can be very appealing to a shy person. Can we talk about the delightful Morrissey? You write, the source of his personal allure was that he seemed able to bear a soul without becoming a social casualty, crowning himself the king of the losers, but addressing his people from a place of strength. Yeah, I think that was what was so appealing about Morrissey to people like me sort of growing up in the 1980s, that he was sort of, um, and I think you could get a sense of this from his songs as well, from his lyrics, that they were sort of both very confessional and very evasive. And what's interesting about a lot of his song lyrics is it's often quite hard to work out who he's talking about. As a the song Ask, for example, which is the one that everyone thinks is called Shyness is Nice. Um, it's not clear who he's addressing. He might be addressing a younger self and saying, don't be uh, shy. Or he might be talking to someone else. Uh, and he would often, he will often kind of veer between I and you between the first and the second person in his song lyrics. So it's often quite hard to work out who he's talking about, whether he's talking about himself or someone else. And you got a sense of that in interviews as well. He was, oddly for a shy person, he was, he was very, he did a lot of interviews, certainly in the 1980s when he was with the Smiths. And again, he was both very willing to talk about not just things like shyness, but also things like depression. So in one sense, he seemed very unguarded. But in another sense, he had this kind of um, uh, sort of carapace of wit and uh, also articulacy. He was very articulate. He was, he was very, um, his sentence, he kind of spoke in sort of proper sentences. There was something very um, appealing about that, I think, that, that he was both kind of un- unconfident and confident at the same time. Yeah, it's an exquisite contradiction when you think about it. I'm just wondering... How do you think the whole mobile culture or how do you think technology has changed the playing field for shy people, whether it's email, whether it's texting or even within Skype? It's a controlled environment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a sort of paradox about some of the new technology in a way that it allows people to confess more. Facebook calls it radical transparency. It, it sort of um, it encourages people to open up their personal lives and to erase the distinction between their public and private selves. And in one sense, you could say that's quite hard for shy people. But at the same time, of course, it's also it's also an indirect thing. It's also it allows you to have an avatar, for example, or it allows you to anonymize yourself. I've always liked things like email, um, because I sort of feel that email is sort of has some of the advantages of a telephone conversation but with none of the disadvantages for a shy person, which is that you sort of have to think on your feet. Um, so it allows you to just kind of reflect on 
what you have want to say. You can be a little bit spontaneous, but you can also you can also be a bit premeditated as well. Of course, it, I think it's one of the reasons why texting took took off. It actually took off. Uh, well, it was Nokia, the Finnish company that company that introduced it in the in the nineties, and it took off among uh, sort of shy Finnish teenage boys, basically, who who didn't find it very easy to talk to each other or to girls. Um, you would think that texting would never really have taken off because it's quite a primitive technology. It's actually quite time-consuming to write a text rather than speak to someone. But there seemed to be some kind of attraction in the sort of um, the, the mediated nature of it that it allows you to formulate a response. So I think a lot of shy people are drawn to that kind of thing, like email and texting, because it's it's both spontaneous and also a little bit premeditated. You write at the end of the book, Joe, that shyness isn't what alienates me from the rest of herd-loving mankind. It's the common thread that links me to them. Is it that it we just have to stop looking for all the reasons and just accept it for what it is? Stop medicine, yeah. you know, stop looking at it as some kind of diagnosis or some kind of medical or behavioural problem and just live and work around it? I suppose what I wanted to show is that it's complex and that it's not necessarily something you can just sort of encapsulate or define easily. I do seem to be attracted to subjects that are about one thing but allow you to talk about lots of other things. And I sort of think that's what I did with the book, really, is it's sort of about shyness, but it's also about quite a lot of other things as well. It's about being human, it's about self-consciousness, it's about language, it's about art and music. So um, shyness is actually a really interesting way, I hope anyway, of not just thinking about shyness, but also just thinking about lots of those other kind of big questions.
And that was British social historian Dr Joe Moran from Liverpool John Moore University. Shrinking Violets is published by Profile Books and retails for in and around 17 euros in hardback. Now, I have to say, this is a fascinating book, informative, culturally expansive and incredibly consoling. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a very big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Lee Duncan on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with the perceptive and compassionate words of Dr Joe Moran from Shrinking Violets, a field guide to shyness, where Joe concludes, The human brain is the most complex object in the known universe. The journey from one brain to another is the most difficult we will ever make, and every attempt at conversation a gamble, with no guarantee we will be understood or even heard. Given these unbending realities, isn't a little shyness around each other forgivable? Good night. Talking Books on Newsalk 106 to 108.